Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. Um, I'm really honoured to have with us as a guest today, Professor Lisa uh, Sharoon, uh, who is the Head of School of Design at QUT. And we've come across each other's path, obviously, and she is a multi-award winning teacher, researcher and designer. And her way of thinking and what she brings to QT is quite exceptional. And she writes about this a lot on LinkedIn. And we thought this would be a perfect um, opportunity to share her thinking behind design thinking with everyone in the audience. So thank you, Lisa, for joining us today. Thanks, Selena. Happy to join. So would you like to tell um, everyone a little bit about yourself, like a little bit about your background and how you came to become the head of school of design? and some of the little bit of the pathway that um, I, I've, I mean, I've read about it a lot, but I'm interested in how you came into your current role. Yeah, sure. Um, it was a very roundabout way. I don't think I grew up thinking I want to be ahead of school, but um, I grew up in a small town in upstate New York, um, just outside of the state capital. Um, I'm one of uh, five kids and my a, a, full of, a family full of boys, so I had lots of boys around my home all the time. Um, and from an early age, I, I always knew I wanted to go and do something big and travel, uh, but I didn't know really how I'd do that. No one in my family had really done anything like that. Um, my mom Can and I just interrupt you for one sec. What? Why? Do you remember what? what the re like at that moment what was it because is there something that can you remember at all the time or the moment when that came to you well I think it was possibly around the time when I was 10 years old um my my uncle my aunt and uncle um had their engineers and they had gotten a posting in in France so and I had when I was growing up my my grandmother was born in Germany and moved to the United States when she was just a little girl like seven um, and my grandmother would go back to Germany and, and she, she had a, um, a, a, our relatives still lived in the family farm in the Black Forest. And I had a cousin who was around my age and my grandmother put us in touch and we just used to write each other letters. It was a way to help my German cousin learn English. And for me, it was just great to have like a pen pal cousin in another country. And so we just used to write each other like funny little letters about our lives. And her letters were translated by her brother she would draw pictures of, she lived on a farm. So she'd draw pictures of her horses or her cows. Um, so I was interested in like her, I, I had like this window into another little girl's life on the other side of the world. And then when I was 10 and my uncle was living in France, my mom took um, my, my older brother and I over to visit them in a way to see them and also visit my cousin who I'd been writing to for like, you know, five years and so I could meet her in person. And I think that was that was probably the reason I was really interested in this world outside of the US. Um, growing up in America can be all encompassing. Some people never ever leave America and they think this is the greatest country in the world. Like, we got everything here, never leave. Um, so having that kind of window into this other experience of my cousin growing up in Germany was, was kind of what made me curious about the rest of the world. Like there is a whole other world out there and there's <laughs> another little girl living in another place. And then when I met her and, and saw uh, where she lived and when I went to visit my uncle in Paris, I would just said, wow, I want to keep going and traveling and see the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, so probably yeah. from around 10, that was when I was like, yes, I'm going to, I'm not going to live in the US forever. I'm going to travel as much as I can. Wow, amazing. So how did you end up in 
leaving? What, what was the pathway that you took to leave America? So I, I, I really wanted to do my, uh, well, first of all, I really wanted to do what they, this rotary exchange. So I applied for a rotary exchange, which they send you to high school in another country for a year. Um, but at the time, if you did that, you extended your high school by a year because American high school had certain required subjects. If you missed them, you had to repeat high school. And I actually didn't want to spend another year after being abroad coming back to high school in the U.S., so I kind of scrapped that idea, but then thought maybe I'll apply for a university overseas. Um, but it was just prohibitively expensive. So um, my, my dream was to go to the American University in Paris, but that was <laughs> super expensive. So um, at the time I thought, well, I'll just, I'll go to the, uni the university that I got a scholarship to down in Florida and I'll just work out a way somehow to travel overseas, whether it's through student exchange, um, or whatnot. And in the end, um, in my second year of university, I found I did a bit of research and went online and found um, au pair in uh, Europe. It was like at the time it was in a um, magazine and I thought <laughs> I can do this. I can au pair over the summer. Uh, so I applied and um, got like a handwritten letter back from this. It was sort of an agency. It was actually an agency in Canada in Toronto and they paired me with this family um, in Rouen outside of Paris. And they um, sent me a letter and a picture. And that's all I had. I had a photograph and a handwritten letter. And I, I rocked up in, in um, Charles de Gaulle and just waited for this family that I only had a photo of to come and pick me up um, and spent like the whole summer as their au pair. And I'd been taking like French language and culture courses at university, but nothing prepared me for like full immersion <laughs> and having to look after a child and bring him to school every day and do his homework in French. Um, but it was a fabulous experience um, to live there with. They were a really wonderful family. They were both um, general practitioners. And so they had they were on call all the time. So they needed someone to help them look after their little boy. And um, yeah, and we traveled. It, it was summertime. So they do. You know, the French have like two months of a year where everyone goes on holiday. So we went down to the Alps in the family van and did the whole wow. <laughs> spent some time at their cabin there. And so it was wonderful experience. And then after um, staying with them, I took a trip on my own throughout Europe to visit friends of mine and, and my cousin in Germany and a friend of mine in Switzerland and then went back to Paris um, to fly back out. So it was a really great I was 19 then and I was it felt really liberating just to travel on my own all throughout Europe. So yeah, some of the people we've interviewed previously on this episode, some of them you may know of um, Eleanor Kari, Kobe Lee, um, people that have got this entrepreneurial mindset. And they talk a lot about this taking, like, what you just described to me reminds me a lot of that arriving at the airport, no idea what's going to happen, but you did it anyway. Yeah, we talk a lot about that on the podcast and what it takes to go through that fear and, and to keep going and not turn back and go, oh, my God, I made a really bad decision. I'm just going to go back. Yeah, many of us do instead of proceeding on to further, you know, keep trying the adventure. Yeah. And I, I remember because I have my the brother that's closest in age to me who's two years older than me, my brother, Andrew. He was just petrified of me going over there because it was during the time when it was um, 
the war in uh, Kosovo and, and Sarajevo. And he was like, there's a war in Europe. And, to, you know, to an American person, it didn't seem that far away where the war was happening. And he said, you're going to this place. It's close to a war. And the, he I remember he tried to convince me to go to Hawaii on holidays. Like, Just go to Hawaii. Just go there and I'll pay for it. I said, I don't want to go to Hawaii. I want to go live in France. And I remember he was so worried about me that he like drove me to the airport to um, JFK, which is a three hour drive from where we we're from. And then when he came to pick me up, I was then a bit nervous too, because I thought, wow, my brother's so concerned and there's a war going on. But then I just said, I want to do this. I'm going to do this. And then when I came back, I remember he got horribly lost trying to get out of JFK, which is an easy thing to do. And, um, and he was freaking out, like, I'm going to get on the wrong bridge. I said, I've just gone all through Europe on my own, like to different places with different languages. I took the train all through Switzerland and managed to get to France. I'm like, it's going to be fine. We're going to get home. And so <laughs> it just shifted my thinking, like, you know what, this isn't a big deal, like calm down. But yeah, he had that real sense of fear of like my little sister's going off to a place that I don't know about. And I'm worried about her, which was sweet. But, you know, at the same time, like, I'm just going to do it. So. Yeah. so I think that then probably just like planted all the seeds. <laughs> yes. And that's how you end up in London, for example. Yeah. So then I, I was like, I got to get back to Europe somehow. And when I was in France, um, American undergraduate program is four years long and I was only in my third year, but I was super determined to finish early to just go somehow back to Europe. So I um, worked out um, with the French. I had been taking French language classes when I was in staying with the family during the day because the little boy would be at school. So I managed to get credit for that. Um, and then took some extra credit exams so I could finish a year early. And then because I'd finished university a year early and I had saved enough money for university for another year, I had applied to graduate school in London. And I said to my dad, like, look, I, this, I've saved a year of cost of university so I can go to England. And he said, okay, I agree. I'll help you out with some of the costs. So I had kind of worked it out so I could do it. But the same thing going to the UK, like I didn't know anyone in England at all. And, um, and I was like determined, I'm going to go and live in London and work as a designer in London. But my, you know, my, I remember my, my father came with me and, and we were live, I was living in this awful little flat it was a student accommodation was in Bethnal Green and Bethnal Green can, is not the, like, it might be a bit nicer now, but it wasn't the <laughs> nicest part of town. And our flat had been broken into several times by someone trying to steal the money out of the payphone. It was down a dark alley. Oh and God. I was living with all Japanese girls. I was the only native English speaker living in that flat. And our little tiny bar fridge was just full of like fish and sushi and things that they like to eat. And uh, my dad took me down to Tesco and said, let's just buy some food for you and we'll cook it up. And, um, and he's like, this is what you can do. You just go to the Tesco, come back. And he, I was like, okay, baby steps, I can do this. And um, yeah, and I managed to like, I remember thinking like, I don't know if I can do this. This is like very scary. I'm in this huge city and I don't know anyone, but it just, I took it day by day and it, you know, the passion for design and for what I wanted to do. And this was my goal, like drove me to not give up. Like I had yeah. to do this. What is that passion for design at that time? Can you remember what that is? Like what, where were, what was your vision? Where were you heading? With well, I, I think I always wanted a creative career, like from when I was very little, I always loved drawing and painting and, um, 
I remember my friend's mom when we were in um, high school said, oh, what do you girls want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be an artist and travel around the world. And she goes, oh, dream on, you know, like I just remember her going, dream on, you can't do that. And I was like, well, I am going to do that. Um, so I, I always knew I wanted some kind of creative career, but I hadn't really found design until I went to university and they had this graphic design course. They'd started it at that university the year I arrived and they were trying to get people to do graphic design. <laughs> and so they said, well, you're really good at printmaking and these subject areas. So why don't you take this design course? And then I liked the whole area of sort of design um, activism and social design. When I was in high school, you know, there was we had a group about saving the environment, saving the planet that I was really engaged in. So I had this idea like design has this way of being, you can, you can actually have a voice to, to influence change. And that was something I was excited about being a part of. So when I did my master's study, um, you know, I was involved with lots of different um, groups in England and people that were of that same mindset, you know, and, and that course brought together people from all over the world. So there was only really two British students in the course. Everyone else was from everywhere. So we had students from all over Europe and Asia. And, um, and then I, that was also interesting to me to get the different perspectives of people from all different countries. And we worked on collaborative projects, um, looking at people's different view of home, of GMOs and, and different like social topics at the time and how they, they were all from different design backgrounds as well. So I had studied graphic design, but then we had people from marketing and advertising and architecture. It was called design studies. So you had people from all different disciplines in design. Can I just ask you for people that aren't like as familiar as you are in your area, um, yep. what would you say, because obviously it's a kind of whole new area, but what would you say would be like the simple takeaway for how design influences change? and the way people can view a new have a new view on something for example i think that design is something that is so embedded that you don't even realize that it's there so everything we have has been designed in some way um, but you know i think that the the processes of design thinking and co-design so when you really design with a group of people for a group of people for an outcome to help them they can accept that more readily so, I mean, that's basically what we do here at QUT. Most of the processes that we do in our design lab are about co-designing. So for instance, at the moment, I'm working on a project with uh, Rockhampton Correctional Center, where we actually went into the prison and talked to prisoners about how we could make better health outcomes for them by redesigning their health forms. So instead of just creating a beautiful health form and saying, there, accept this, we wanted to know what the issues were with the form, why, you know, why it wasn't working for them, how we could make it better for them. So getting their insight on that has really helped to make something effective. So by, by doing that, they can procure the services that they need instead of being dependent on something that doesn't work for them, that Do maybe they weren't getting to, right um, Share a little bit about what they, like, what, like just for the audience, because we have people from these areas listening to, um, was it something really simple, like the way, like what were the main issues? Was it really something we wouldn't even realize, for example? Well, it was the, basically the health form was a very standard health form and it was all text-based. A lot of people that are in correctional facilities have, have low or rudimentary literacy rates. 
So there was nothing visual on that form. So like if you couldn't read well or, you know, and there were medical terms that maybe they didn't understand what that meant. Right. Um, And so, and, and as you know, it was an all male prison and grown men don't really want to ask for help sometimes or admit. I was about Um, to say that just tick something rather than ask for help. Right. Wow. So some of it was that there were parts of the form they didn't understand at all. Parts of it, they were embarrassed to ask someone about. So, you know, a lot of issues in the prison health system are mental health and sexual health issues, and they didn't want to have someone help them and like figure out what those things were. Um, And then also there was like, they would put this form in and there was no idea when they would get the service. So we wanted to inbuild something to give them an indication of when they would get the service. So if it was a service beyond, they have nursing staff in the correctional center, but beyond that, like if they needed to see a specialist for something, if they needed to see an optometrist, um, if they needed to see a dentist, it could be like several months, weeks or months for, to get that service. So they, but they had no idea when they were going to do it. So we're like, well, maybe we can build in something that can help you get an indication of time frame for these services so that it's not like you're just waiting forever and someone's forgotten about your health issue. Yeah. So, yeah. So those were some of the the things that they shared with us, um, why that was difficult for them to get the services yeah. that they needed. So when you, just to go back again to London, so uh, you obviously found your love there um, yeah, as yeah. you proceeded to stay and everything. You fell in love, obviously, with London and design. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I had, at that time, I was uh, an American living in the UK and I'd finished my postgraduate study. So I had to get a job because I had, I had to get a work permit to stay there. So I applied for, for many things, but it was very difficult to get a job that um, I, had to pr- I had to basically prove I was more skilled than anybody in the EU or the UK for those design jobs. And I just graduated. So I, along this journey to try to find a job, I ended up finding um, a job for an American company that was moving over and they were an interior design company really well-known interiors company in the U S was starting up a branch in the UK. Um, and so because I was American and I had, I had, I had had a, a role with them previously when I just finished university in the U S. So, um, it was a given, they were able to get me a work permit, but it was, and it was fun. I was going to people's homes and designing beautiful, you know, uh, layouts of their rooms and selling them beautiful design plans. But it, ideally, I'd always wanted to work in social design or helping people with design. So it wasn't what I really wanted to do. And I started to apply for other roles um, everywhere in the UK and Europe. And um, there was a magazine at the time called Design Week. Um, and they had all the job ads for designers in the back. And I just would like apply for all the ones that I was interested in. And through that process, and at the same time, I thought, I'll, if this doesn't work out, I'm going to go to the U.S. Peace Corps. <laughs> so <laughs> I signed up for the Peace Corps. And that's a really um, in-depth process of vetting, like because you're basically joining the United States government and getting security mm-hmm. vetting to work in another mm-hmm. country. So I went through the whole process of applying to work, to go into the Peace Corps. Um, but at the same time, I was applying for lots of design jobs. And what had happened is I got accepted into the Peace Corps. And they said to me very vaguely, like, we are going to send you to French speaking Africa because we can see you have a a background speaking French. 
Um, and you're going to be setting up small businesses in some rural place. And I remember that was like kind of petrifying, first of all, because I'd never <laughs> set up a business before and I didn't know where in French speaking Africa this was. And I couldn't imagine going and doing that. But I said, well, maybe I could do that. But at the same time, one of the roles I had applied for, which would, had broadly just teach design in Asia, um, <laughs> I had gotten like an interview for. So I went to the interview and they said, great, you know, they didn't even look at my portfolio for more than a few seconds and said, you're hired, come to Shanghai. And I was like, <laughs> what? I thought teaching in Asia was in Singapore because the company was in Singapore, but it was actually in, in Shanghai. And then I said, oh, well, I have to think about this. They said, well, we'll pay you this and, you know, you get this amount of holidays, you know, national week for um, this and, and spring festival is a great like opportunity. So I thought, okay, well, I could go work in China or I could go work in French-speaking Africa. And those are my two choices. And I remember calling up a friend of mine that I had met in uh, my course in London. And she's Singaporean and she knew the school really well because they're Singaporean-based. And I said, is this, what is this? Like, do you, and she goes, you should do it. Like, the pay is good. Her father had a company. I didn't at that time even have any idea what, you know, anything about China. I had never even thought of living in China. Um, and she said, no, it's a, it's a decent wage. They're a good school. You should just try it out. And then I thought, you know what, like if it's horrible, I'll get a return ticket and I'll come back. <laughs> and so, but that experience ended up once again, transforming, uh, what I wanted to do with my career. Cause at that point I was like going in to be a designer working in the design industry. But when I went to go teach design, I just fell in love with teaching design and, um, I really like the students I had were amazing and the environment Shanghai was just like at that time it was in this transition so you, whole neighborhoods were getting flattened skyscrapers were getting built everywhere and like industry was just flourishing in different ways and you can see this total transformation of a city that was really exciting and the students were feeding into that they just really wanted to learn all about like what the profession of design was and what they could do in that field and so it was it was a really, really exciting like experience and opportunity to live in this place that was like completely foreign to where I grew up and, and what I had, you know, my background and that I had never, ever thought I'd do. But <laughs> I learned so much and it just completely like shifted my course of what I had thought I would I would do after I finished my postgrad studies. Wow. And so how long were you there? I was in China for two years. And then in the second year, I thought, oh, I really love working in higher ed. And if I want to continue, I should do a PhD. Um, so I went and applied for a PhD place in London at the School of Asian Studies. I was going to do a study about my time in China and how advertising was impacting young people. Um, and I had it all mapped out. And then I started to take intense Mandarin lessons because I wasn't very fluent. Like all my, my Shanghainese friends all wanted to learn English. So they were very helpful, but it wasn't helpful in me learning Mandarin like I had wanted to. So in the intensive Mandarin lessons was where I met my now husband, who's Australian. <laughs> and, he, and he said to me, he was about to come back to Australia to study his, um, for a teaching certification. And he sort of was like, well, I like you. And I'm like, I like you too, but I'm going to London. And he said, I'm going back to Australia. And then he sort of said, well, we have universities in Australia, you know, and I thought, well, yeah, why not? So I applied to Griffith University to do my PhD here because he's from Brisbane. 
And, um, and that's how I ended up in Australia. Just once again, it totally shifted the course I was going to take. I was going to go back to London and, and yeah. And now I've been in Australia for 16 years. So wow. it ended up shifting Well, we're again. really lucky to have you, aren't we? <laughs> but I think that global experience has got to really be valuable for design thinking. Yeah. And that when I, um, was in all of the teaching I've done in Australia, um, I've been trying to foster that understanding with design students, um, bringing them to Asia, because just getting outside of your, your, your comfort zone and being in a culture that is very different from your own can actually increase your cultural intelligence. So I did a lot of research on how um, the cultural intelligence, even in short periods of time of students could be improved by that experience outside of their comfort zone in another country with a significantly different culture. So um, for, for about um, 10 years, I've been taking students on, on study tours to um, Shanghai, um, to Beijing, to Singapore, to Japan, so that they could have this experience outside of Australia and get that real cultural understanding. Yeah. Um, and to learn about design in another place and that other aesthetic and how it functions. And that's been that was really rewarding that experience because I could see how those students transform their viewpoint and even they never thought about like living and working in Asia mm-hmm. and many of them then would go off and go I'm gonna start my design career in in Singapore or in Beijing which yeah. was something they never thought of before yeah um how many people are studying the evolution of design culturally like there must be a huge area is it looking at the evolution over you know millions of years of history yeah I mean there's way more on art history it's hard because art history and the history of design can be enmeshed um I mean surprisingly there aren't that many history of design books um there are a couple of seminal works but not like you know the numerous works you have on art history um but and there really isn't any definitive like a, a history of Australian design which I think still needs to be written because Australia is home to one of the oldest cultures in the world. And no one has really looked at how that, you know, in a, in a people have looked at it in, in different ways and how that's um, influenced design culture, but not in a definitive way in looking at pre-colonization and colonization of Australia and, and how that's rolled out. So when I have time, I would love to do that. But <laughs> I know. At the moment, well, I don't. <laughs> that, moves, that moves us to the next part which is about leadership. So what would you say now that you've stepped into a leadership role? I mean, we're all leaders in our own lives, and you've obviously been doing that since you were 10 or before. Um, but in terms of leadership, now leading others and um, an organisation, you know, you you're in the middle between having to manage up and down at the same time. So what would you say the greatest challenges have been stepping into some kind of situation like that? Oh, there's many, there's many challenges, but they have big rewards. But the, I think the main challenge is helping people deal with change. And this is like been escalated by times a thousand during the pandemic. So I think that, you know, people like regularity in their life. They like predictability. When you change that and you switch that up, it is, it is confronting and confusing. And when people are out of their comfort zone, they sometimes act in ways that are uncharacteristic. So as a leader, it's your role to try to get them to make them feel comfortable and to get them moving along and to make sense of things when sometimes it doesn't even make sense to you. <laughs> so yeah. it's like it's it's a lot of factor. Yeah. Everyone it's, feeling safe. 
keeping people feel feeling safe and feeling that you're listening to them and trying to understand them, um, particularly in those times when just, you know, there's chaos and they, they need someone, they need like a light guiding light to go, okay, I can, I can, you know, someone's helping me move forward. So in terms of, um, so you talk about the rewards. So let's talk about, we always talk about challenges, but I think what are the opportunities and the rewards that you personally have experienced by taking on this challenge? Oh, like the team that we have in the School of Design, we've been very impacted by a complete restructure of our work area. But despite that, like we have, they have achieved amazing things. So together as a collective, we have been able to, um, win major design awards this year. We, our, our, our teaching is at 80% satisfaction across our course. Wow. Um, our staff are, you know, like just kicking butt in all areas, even though they were impacted by this change in, in a very dramatic way. Not only was our area split up, but we're also having to move to another campus. So in all senses of disruption, we've been disrupted. But because of the team spirit and that that feeling that you know, in some ways that I have their back, that they're able to move forward. So we won, I just got a beautiful message today from a colleague because we've won um, two Australian Good Design Awards for wow. the work around design and health. And she said, and I remember when, when that project was put up, I said, we need to apply for these Good Design Awards. And everybody was exhausted. And they said, oh, come on, Lisa, we're just tired. We don't have time. I said, I will actually help you. Let's get it done. Let's put it in. And we pushed ourselves to put it in. And the reward was that we got recognized in that way. And so my colleague said, I remember I didn't want to do that because I was tired. And thank you for like pushing us to like, you know, get recognition because, you know, you believed in this project. So I think, you know, despite uh, a lot of change, we've just achieved amazing things. And and we genuinely feel like a family in the school. Like I can say that honestly, like we were out, um, having coffees the other day with um with Scott Shepherd, our deputy vice chancellor international, who's who's one of a buddy with our school as part of an executive program to be um integrating into the school. And he was just like, you guys just feel like you, you just really love hanging out with each other. Is that real? And I'm like, yes, we actually do. So to be able to have that feeling of, you know, a family feeling with your colleagues and to be able to trust them enough and to be able to achieve those things despite change in a massive way is, is, a, is a really rewarding thing. Yeah, I think I was reading somewhere on LinkedIn and, uh, and articles on Harvard Business Review and other places is that the num- because of the massive disruption in the workplace across the world, that there's going to be a massive mismatch between the jobs available and the people that are able to do them. Yep. Not everyone can just all of a sudden become an excellent designer yep. or have design thinking or become a neuroscientist or whatever it is, like they take some training. Um, and that mismatch is going to be met by people that are really flexible. And the number one uh, survey result that came back from that study was that the main thing that the highly skilled people will go to, the sort of jobs they go to or stay in are where they feel appreciated and thanked. Yes, that was yep. the number one thing. That's the freest. It wasn't about pay rise. It wasn't about holidays. It wasn't about, I mean, team, like who you're working with matters and all of that. But the number one thing that came across in the study was they just want to be appreciated and, and thanked. And that's what keeps them staying in that place. It's yeah. such an easy thing, but it's the thing that people don't really do. And I, I, and I yeah, don't and I, really know why. <laughs> and that's 
when I, during the pandemic, we had had to shift all of our teaching online in like a week. And that was a very difficult thing to do, particularly for areas like architecture that don't do anything online. And um, I remember going into the meeting with, I could, I could tell it was going to go that way because I had friends in the U S and they were like, Oh, this is going online. (laughs) And I thought, okay. So I sat everybody down and I said, look, guys, this is probably the last time we're going to meet in person. And we're probably going to have to put everything online. Let's, let's talk about how we're going to do that. We went around the table and every, we got to the architecture, architecture program and they went, we can't put anything online. Like you can, we can do it. Let's think about it. And then they were like, okay, okay. And during that whole period, everybody like stepped up and did what they needed to do because we had to. But I recognized what everybody was doing. I mean, they were spending like round the clock doing that, looking after their kids at home. People were exhausted, but they just kept pushing through. So I'm like, I need to thank everybody. This is way over what they had to do. So I actually wrote every single person in the school. Thank you. No, like handwritten. I, I stayed up until like three in the morning and mailed it to their homes because everybody was at home. And um, I like, everybody was just like, wow, thank, you know, no one has ever thanked me before. And I've worked here for 20 years. And I was like, no one thanked you before. And they were like, yeah, no one ever thanked me for the work. I was like, so yeah, it's, it's, it's some, it was just something small that I did like sending a thank you note, but that pe- people like appreciated it because we often don't, the, the, the goalposts just keep getting higher and you never get that opportunity to, when, when you have a, when you have a leader that really tries to understand you and, to, and to, to step into your shoes and go, you know what, I get it. It's hard. And I'm not expecting you to be superwoman or superman. I'm expecting you to be super and a woman <laughs> And you have a life like, you know, because once somebody's health and well-being goes off the rails, it's very hard to get back. And that's, you know, the reality is we can only do so much. But if and that's what our, you know, that's what the collaborative, the team, the collective is there to help pick you up when you fall. Yeah. And if you feel like you have to do that all alone all the time, it just it's not healthy. And that's yeah. why universities can be awful places when you just feel like you're a lone wolf living in this reality where everybody's competing against each other. And I've seen, you know, brilliant people completely drop out and fail because not because they're not amazing at what they do, but because they weren't supported. Yeah. Um, So this brings me down to the design thinking element and neuroscience intersection, um, because that's, I mean, design your that from my perspective it's design your brain to like at the really basic level you have that opportunity too it's not easy for many people but you can do that now we understand that so I like that intersection between how design thinking and I want your feedback on this is like having a vision isn't it like of something like other people use the word being ambitious or being like having a bigger vision of yourself that's kind of what I think of when I think about what you're saying about design thinking and how to influence and have purpose around what you're doing, not just to make something beautiful, but to have impact. Yeah. And I, it, it is definitely about that. And I think design thinking is also kind of reversing that um, very linear thought pattern that often kind of happens like in the sciences or even in industry where it's like, we have problem A or B and we're going to solve it with this, this path. So it's like, we're going to go, we're going to do these experiments to solve this problem. 
design thinking is like, we really don't actually know what the problem is or the issue. We might know a very broad sense of what the problem is, but to get to the actual issue, we have to go down a pathway of exploration before we can even do that, of understanding that the nuance in like a huge problem like sustainability, for instance, we were talking about being more sustainable and how we do that with our design teaching the other day at a symposium at the School of Design. And I said, I don't even know what living sustainably is because I never have. And none of us can say we've actually had a sustainable life because we haven't. Our society is not sustainable. We didn't grow up in one. Um, so how we can teach people to be sustainable is difficult. But it's not to say that we can't do it. But we're not, you know, like we don't even have a model of that. So we don't really know what the problem is, but we have to find a way to even work out what the problem is. Yeah. And I think that that's really the heart of design thinking is like, finding your pathway through a large issue to find the things that you can solve and then working on them piece by piece and, and constantly prototyping. So you're, the solution that you have might fail, but in the process of failing, you learn other things and then you fix them. So it's constantly iterating things that will fail. And then you can, and I, I think that's, that's actually how the learning about your brain and how the brain works. Everybody, you know, we're, we're still trying to work out ourselves and how we function as humans. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's my take on design thinking. And it's all very similar to, I think, what you look at in your research. Yeah. Um, when you, just on that issue of sustainability, like sustainability, if you have like the really honest conversation about it, is about what are you willing to give up? How, right. much, how much growth in your superannuation? How much house price are you willing to give up for sustainability? Because that is the bottom line. And the reason why we can't really have these conversations globally is because we're our economic models are built on growth, aren't they? Right. So we have to stop buying things. We <laughs> so. Yeah. And to actually be sustainable is very difficult. It's not easy. And it's, it's a long road of changing people's habits. And that, as you would know, from your field <laughs> of expertise, changing people's habits and their patterns of how they do things is incredibly difficult, especially yeah. when it's sort of hardwired in, like this is how something works. <laughs> so it's really interesting because looking at the David Attenborough final witness statement documentary, like you know, people are looking at this as very complicated problem, but after all of the work he's done at 91, his solution is after probably a lot of thinking, because the best solutions always come through deep thought, is we just need to rewild the world, mm -hmm. right? We just need to keep planting trees. We need to bring back all of the species that we've eliminated, like with time, and, and that will bring back the world because the, the um, you know, plants and animal, well, plants particularly, will always outlive humans, so they'll always regrow again. We might get rid of a bunch of species, but they will come back. That's the one definite thing that they, and that was what I loved about his final witness statement. It started in Chernobyl and, and finished in Chernobyl where there were no more people left, but all the plants had regrown over all the concrete buildings. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know, so like, and then if you, if you look for a more simple solution, like we, if we want to be sustainable, then we have to look at Indigenous cultures because they lived here for 60,000 years with the, you know, in touch with the planet, you know, and they we didn't have this problem. Yeah. I, and that's, I think that, I mean, humans have this way of, of making things complex and then, <laughs> 
And sometimes it's actually simple. That there's a one of my favorite designers, um, Paul Rand, um, who designed the IBM logo and many other things. He he has this great quote, which is design is so simple. That's why it's so complicated. Yeah. <laughs> because the best solutions, they look really simple. Like it's, you know, sometimes you think, oh, it's easy to be sustainable. You know, I just recycle and I I lived, you know, and I never buy new things and I just reuse and but it's it's actually complex because our whole society is built with this layer and level of complexity and continuous growth that actually is counterintuitive to what we need to do to be sustainable. But it's not to say we can't do it. It's just you have to take baby steps and do the things you can do, change habits. And over time, um, things can improve. Yeah. And 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 when we had the sustainability um, conference the other day. I, I um, read out two examples of, you know, how um, academics, you know, in some ways they want to influence and change the world. And, and that's the wonderful thing about working in academia, which is why we stay working when we feel really burned out, um, uh, is that, you know, there's this kind of feeling like I can change the world. And I was reading the story of um, the, the 1948 uh, Nobel Prize winner in medicine who invented DDT. Mm-hmm. But he did that oh, yes. to like for the medical purposes. And he was like, I can eradicate typhus this yes. way, which was amazing. But then DDT went on to like poison, like ecosystems all over the world. Mm-hmm. And then 10 years later, DDT. Rachel Carson. Yeah. Rachel Carson wrote DDT Silent is, Spring. Yeah. Tell them about that. DDT is actually that in Roundup, for example, that we use yeah. in gardens. Yeah. So um, one, both of these academics had this view, like, I want to save the world and I want to do something great. And, and it, what like the, the um, Mueller is the guy that um, worked out the medical, the ways to like use it to um, combat typhus. I mean, his, his purpose was to save lives, like, and it did, but it did something else, which this unintended other effect of it was to destroy ecosystems. And then Rachel Carson got that reverse. So that in 70, she wrote the book in 62. And then in 1972, 10 years later, the EPA Environmental Protection Agency of the US banned it from use. So like that's, but I was using it as an example to say, we have to keep rethinking like and reshaping the way, you know, just like you do when you learn, like, the thing, what I learned in design, the processes that I learned have shifted and changed over time. If I stayed static, like everything I learned in my undergraduate is the only way I'm going to think about design, then I would be stuck in some really old school way of doing something. I've shifted my perspective through traveling, through experiences with different people over time. Um, and that has enabled me to go as far as I have gone and, and to get to this point in my life. Um, and I think that's, you know, what you need to do when, when you're approaching any complex problem is like, you know, we have to keep rethinking the way we're doing things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we can't just come up with dichotomous solutions for complex problems. Like even COVID-19 is a really great example of it's actually a very complex thing that we've treated very simply when it's not at all simple. So there's no simple solution for that particular problem. If you look at it, just like you said, at a global level, it's got multiple impacts. It's not just dying from COVID. It's got mental health impacts. It's got business impacts. It's got so many, it's had so many multi-layer impacts on our society. So that's another example, isn't it, where our leaders want to use a simple solution when you really can't. Yeah. And I remember when it was impacting us because our, our, um, 
the vice chancellor, I think, was on leave and the provost was on leave. So my executive dean was acting as a provost and she asked me to act as dean. And I remember she's like, nothing's going to happen at this time. It's a really quiet time period. It was February. <laughs> and then suddenly, like, that COVID was impacting like China and we realized Chinese students aren't coming back. And we had these daily briefings like with like the university executive and they were like, you know what, by June we'll have a vaccination. It'll all be fine. And the students will come back. And I kept thinking, even if they did manage to do that, like a vaccination program for China, like even China, like a a population of billions is going to take a while, like to roll that out. (laughs) And like, um, and of course we know what happened. It didn't, we didn't figure that out in June. It's still going. (laughs) And that's the thing. It's like, everybody kept thinking, once we get the vaccination sorted out, like it'll end, but like to roll out vaccination programs, any type of health um, program like that is, is massive. And this is a worldwide thing. So like it's, but it's taught us a lot, like about in such a short, in in a relatively like two year period. And this is like things that none of us have experienced before, because like my generation hasn't gone through war and crisis, like even my, my father's generation, but they, like that understanding of the, of what people do when they're afraid and, and the reactions of uncertainty and like being able to like ride through these periods is what builds resilience. So, and, and an understanding of like our collective humanity, because I think we often we're, we live in such an individualistic society that we think, you know, we're kind of can just be an Island on our own, but this period of time has showed like we are, we are collective um and we have to function in that way so yeah i think i like just to close out and thanking you for your, all your time that you've spent is i love that idea of simple solutions and i think that's what design does it provides a simple solution to very to a lot of complexity and that's what people need is some simplicity to understand something that's really complex and you know many scientific discoveries came from the simple solution not from very very complex ones but it took all the complexity of understanding to come up with the structure of dna for example and that took two centuries of hard work behind the scenes um, so in terms of the last bit where, where we need to work together, um, there's a lot of research now um, just coming out in the last few uh, weeks, which is really exciting, demonstrating actually that a particular part of the brain is lit up in a team that's in flow. Mm. And only when that team is working together in flow and not when you're working alone. So you actually activate a brand new brain region together. Wow. Yeah. And I was, I was listening to a podcast about that. Um, how, you know, at some point your, your brain stops the ability to learn new things, but you learn new things from your social connections and that's how you grow. And so like people can do amazing things by making those connections with other people. Yeah. It's so fascinating. And I'm sure that's what you're doing all every day in your studio there (laughs) with everyone. Yep. It's always about connecting. And that's another favorite quote of mine by Charles Eames um, is that design connects. And that's the connection of design. It connects people to things and to places and to other people. And that's the powerful thing about design. Well, what a great place to finish. Uh, Thank you, Professor Lisa. (laughs) Thanks, Selena. Um, for joining us on Thriving Minds and, and helping people. We didn't really even get to cover all the other topics like women in leadership and what it takes to succeed, Which, but I think you've just spoken a million um, 
things about what people can relate to to see just what it took for you to get where you are and the resilience that it took. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom um, with everyone today. No worries. And thank you for inviting me to have a chat.